Hello and welcome to the role of executive power and discretion under the rule of law, a conference held at Stanford University's Hoover Institution in March of 2015. Hosted by distinguished visiting fellow Alan Meltzer and senior research fellow Ken Scott, the conference is part of Hoover's initiative on regulation and the rule of law, which conducts research and analysis on the foundations of the market system, private property rights, and the rule of law in relation to a free society. This podcast features Barry Weingast, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, discussing his paper, Executive Discretion and the Rule of Law, a Positive Analysis of Presidential Signing Statements. The discussant is Nate Persley of Stanford University, and it was recorded on March 6, 2015. Well, it's great to be here. Uh, this has worked out very well. Thanks to Alan for making this all work. Um, signing statements. Signing statements uh, allow the president to do many things, uh, explain why he is signing a law, uh, give an interpretation of the law, uh, say something about its constitutionality, including uh, uh, announcing parts that are unconstitutional in his view and he will not enforce, uh, and uh, they are of uncertain legal status, uh, especially in the statutory interpretation realm. That is, um, uh, the, question, the, the question is, should they be used uh, in uh, uh, statutory interpretation? Are they useful? So that's both a normative and positive question that we're going to ask on this. Uh, you know, I, I just asked the normative one. Sh should we pay attention to signing statements as part of the legislative record? And the positive question is, well, how would granting this legal status to signing statements uh, affect the legislative process uh, and affect the outcome of legislation? Uh, one of our theses, this is a methodological thesis, that we cannot answer the normative question without first having an answer to the positive question. So the literature, it's mostly normative. There are some tallies of frequencies of the use of these. Uh, there is an obvious positive point that's made in the literature, and that is signing statements can have a direct effect on statutory interpretation by moving the interpretation from uh, uh, the legislation as enacted by Congress toward that, the interests of the president. Uh, Bradley and Posner uh, suggest that signing statements are, in fact, no different from any memo a president might write after the fact. Uh, but we disagree on that, and the reason is uh, uh, this normative question about what the, how the court should treat these. If the court simply is uh, uh, not, tr not taking them as part of the legislative record, then it doesn't matter when the president issues a signing statement, whether it's a memo long after the fact or, or just after the legislation is passed or he signed it. But if the court's treated as part of the legislative uh, record by virtue of it being uh, announced as part of his signing, uh, of the legislation, then that's a very different thing. And that's what we're interested in. What would be the effect? The positive question is what would be the effect of, of doing so? And as we show, the literature misses a significant positive feedback effect that legal status, that granting legal status to presidential signing statements would have. That is, it dramatically reverses some of the nature of the uh, legislative process uh, as specified in Article 1, Section 7. Uh, hence, they are not, uh, legal status is not an innocuous idea, uh, but in fact has some pernicious aspects to it, as I will hope to explain. So we're going to use the, what is now, standard approach to positive political theory in the law. These begin with models of the legislative process uh, uh, and then uh, uh, introduce courts and look in the interaction between courts and uh, the elected officials. We will be doing some of that today. 
uh, I think I just mentioned that the, uh, uh, the, the granting signing statements with legal, legal status alters, uh, allows the president to alter the meaning of the act. I'll give you some examples of that. Uh, and and the, uh, Congress anticipates this. And so as a consequence, um, the le region of gridlock trend tends to grow. Uh, and a startling role reversal, what we call a role reversal of Article 1, Section 7. That is, Congress ends up with veto power and the President ends up with the ability to um, uh, deal with the contents of legislation. I'll explain what that means in a minute. Uh, uh, as I said, a pernicious effect. So wh what I'm going to do is three things today. First, we're going to talk about some empirical regularities of signing statements. Uh, I'm going to then summarize our theory and then we'll talk to, at the very end about the normative implications. All right, so the, the empirical questions are, how common are signing statements? Uh, are they largely uh, focused on foreign, foreign policy, security, defense? Uh, and do presidents regularly or, and, or systematically use signing statements to affect an act's interpretation? Um, interestingly, we have no way of knowing whether signing statements, the degree to which they affect the bureaucracy, that is the degree to which when a president says, I will not enforce this, that an agency decides not to enforce that. Since after all, the agency in not enforcing things doesn't have to say, oh, well, the president directed us to do this in the signing statement. Given their uncertain legal status, that in fact would be a rather uh, potentially precarious legal argument, and so they're likely to find all kinds of other arguments as to why they wouldn't do so. And that makes it very difficult to see the, uh, the actual effect of these. All right. uh, Dellinger, uh, who's written on this, uh, uh, divides signing statements into three types, and we use that. One is constitutional. These are signing statements by which the president says uh, he uh, uh, questions the constitutional authority of a provision and therefore uh, will interpret it in, in light of uh, uh, what he believes the Constitution says. Uh, and uh, with some uncertainty as to exactly what that means, since that's a rather ambiguous phrase. I'll give you an example of that in a minute. An interpretive signing statement is one in which the president says, I'm signing this law today because. Uh, often these uh, have, uh, moreover, I'm interpreting the position uh, in the following way, or I'm going to direct the bureaucracy to uh, 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 interpret this act in the following way. Although signing statements uh, have been uh, uh, used as early as the early 19th century, only under Ronald Reagan, we believe, do they become more systematic. I, I say, but see Chris DeMuth here, because as we'll see, I guess this pointer doesn't work so well at this, as he, as, as, as uh, Chris pointed out yesterday, if you look at the, the data, it actually uh, looks like it might begin to change in 1970 rather than 1980. Well, I'll let you be the judge when we get to the, the, the graphs. Uh, and Ed Meese played a big role in this. Uh, Ed, Ed Meese got it so that the signing statements were included in the U.S. Code of Congressional Administrative News, so they're associated with the uh, passage of an act. Uh, and Ed's, Ed apparently said, so that all can be available to the court for future construction of what that statute really means. Uh, I want to first disabuse us of a misleading understanding. This was a topic of discussion, as some of you will recall, in Washington when we met. Um, do signing statements focus on defense and foreign policy? I think the answer is, is pretty clearly no. In our data set, there are nearly 600 uh, interpretive signing statements, just over 150 are in that category. So about a third, excuse me, about a fourth are in the category of defense or security. All the rest are, are domestic policy making, or by and large. Um, although uh, it is true that the frequency of signing statements is, is about double uh, that uh, 
the frequency of signing statements for defense, security, and foreign aid is about double that for domestic legislation. Roughly 4.5% of laws in the defense security area get them, whereas only 2.5% of domestic policy uh, gets them. Uh, and here's the, uh, 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 the, the graph I was talking about. So this um, takes us from uh, approximately 1960 or 1950 uh, through, through the nearly the present, and as you can see, that signing statements since around 1970 or 1980 uh, uh, have really taken off. There are many more of them in the last 30 to 40 years. Um, uh, uh, the vertical text, uh, number of laws, <laughs> number of laws with signing statements uh, by year is on the left, and then the, the proportion of legislation on the right. So uh, if we look at the, right, at, at the left graph, uh, Chris was talking about the little kink here in 1970. If you take a look at the dat dotted line, which is something like the lowest curve uh, 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 of what the underlying data suggests, uh, you can see that there's a, uh, there's a significant peak uh, recently that, that uh, President Bush uh, II uh, used them quite a bit, Obama much less so. Uh, and the same thing for the proportion. Uh, as to the 1970 versus 1980, I'll, I don't have a... Uh, a, a dog in that fight, so <laughs> if Chris, uh, but substantively they seem to, signing statements seem to have taken off um, under Reagan. Um, here they are, uh, I've divided them by uh, categories. On the left uh, is the number of signing statements in a particular area. On the right is the proportion of bills in that area that um, receive signing statements. Um, if we look on the left, uh, that is the number of bills, we can see that if you can read this down here, um, uh, defense is the second most and foreign policy is the fourth most, uh, but, most uh, but almost all the rest are domestic policy. And so their signing statements are scattered across the different areas of domestic legislation, including uh, government operations, uh, environmental crime, uh, 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 and the like. Uh, facts and illustrations. Um, signing statements go back to James Monroe. At least they've been traced to James Monroe. I haven't seen one from him, but I'll take the literature's uh, uh, word on that. And here's one from uh, May of 1830 uh, with Andrew Jackson uh, uh, wrote the House saying, the phraseology of the section which appropriates the sum of $8,000 uh, for the road from Detroit to Chicago may be construed to authorize the application of the appropriations for continuous of the road beyond the limits of the territory of Michigan. I desire to understand as having approved this bill with the understanding that the road authorized, this section, authorized by this section is not to be extended beyond the limits of the territory. Uh, I, I don't have the language from the act uh, to see how, how, how uh, uh, accurate uh, the president's uh, uh, characterization of this is, but he's clearly giving a directive here uh, in, in that. So an interpretive signing statement. Here's a more modern one from Ronald Reagan, which he announced on uh, signing the Safe Drinking Water Act Amendments of 1988, uh, 1986. Reagan declared that the provisions calling for mandatory enforcement of violations infringed on the powers of the executive, a debatable constitutional position that contradicted the plain text of the statute, which provided that the EPA shall issue an order and shall commence a civil action under the relevant circumstances. Uh, here's a cel celebratory one from Cle President Clinton. You can imagine him uh, delighting in being able to wax eloquently on these kinds of things. This language sounds very much like him. Uh, let me just read the second paragraph uh, from Clinton. Since the enactment of public law such such over 20 years ago, individuals with the Disabilities Act 
has made it possible for millions of children with disabilities to receive an education, helping them to become productive adults. The bill before me builds on that success story. And here's a constitutional signing statement from George W. Bush on the National Defense Act uh, Authorization Act for fiscal year nine, uh, 2008. Today I have signed H.R. 4986 dot dot dot. The act authorizes funding for the defense of the United States and its interests abroad for military construction and for national security related energy programs. He says provisions of the act, including these sections, purport to impose requirements that could inhibit the president's ability to carry out his constitutional obligations, to take care that the laws will be faithfully executed, to protect national security, to supervise the executive branch, and to execute his authority as the commander-in-chief. The executive branch shall construe such provisions in a manner consistent with the constitutional authority of the president. Um, it's not clear quite whether or not that's a massive or a minor change from this, uh, but nonetheless you can see the nature of the use of this. this is, these provisions are unconstitutional in, in the president's mind and therefore he will not enforce them. Uh, finally, uh, signing statements have an uncertain legal status. Uh, some courts have ignored them. Here's a Ninth Circuit case. But to varying degrees, other courts have uh, uh, treated them as an interpretive aid. And here are two different cases, one involving the Torture Victims uh, uh, Protection Act and the other one having to do with the Civil Rights Act of Amendments of 91. Uh, it's fair to say uh, that courts have yet to declare, declare a clear precedent on this issue. All right, let's talk a little bit about the model, how to, how to think about this. Uh, as I said, standard positive political theory in the law. That's a little like uh, the parallels with law and economics, only using positive political theory, modern political science. What I want to do is first present a summary. I'm going to present a summary, not the model, of course. I'm gonna, I'll spare you the details. Uh, and first we'll talk about a simple model that has no signing statements and then add signing statements to see what the difference is. So without further ado, <laughs> Um, in these models, they, we begin with a status quo. Uh, we often want to know whether the status quo is stable, meaning that no legislation will pass. Uh, we can vary the status quo. Uh, some status quos are good, uh, uh, are not, are, are bad for both uh, the president and the executive, excuse me, the Congress and the executive, and so they'll want to pass legislation. Others are in effect between them, and one wants to increase, the other wants to decrease, and therefore there's gridlock. Uh, Moreover, in the model, we have policy dis disagreement. We assume something like uh, that they, uh, Congress and the President have opposing preferences. So the Congress prefers a policy of P equals zero. Uh, e prefers the executive P equal one. Uh, you don't need to know quite what they, we don't need to get into the details of that, but it that just means that they have different preferences. Uh, and then there's a sequence of interaction. First, we begin with the status quo, as I said. Uh, Congress decides whether to pass legislation. Uh, and then the executive decides whether to veto. And we're gonna assume away the prospect of a veto override as making things very complicated without changing the nature of the results. So, to determine outcomes, we work backwards. Uh, so the last stage, an executive will veto uh, le legislation passed by Congress whenever he prefers the status quo to P equals zero. P equals zero, as you will recall, is the ideal uh, policy from the standpoint of Congress, and we assume that that's what Congress does. Uh, and so we end up with gridlock whenever um, the status quo is greater than zero. In effect, whenever the status quo is between the uh, uh, policy preferences of Congress and the uh, president. All right, so what happens when we add signing statements? Well, again, we have a sequence of choice. We, we begin with a status quo, Q. Uh, Congress decides whether to legislate or not. 
Uh, and if Congress has legislated, then the president or the executive gets to decide between accepting the legislation as is, uh, vetoing it, or issuing a signing statement that reinterprets the nature of the act. Well, again, to figure out what happens, we work backwards. What happens at the last stage? If Congress has legislated, uh, then the president will in alter the legislation from P equals zero to P equal one. In other words, the president will take advantage of the opportunity for a signing statement and use the signing statement to reinterpret the law consistent with his preferences. Uh, C, uh, Congress uh, anticipates this behavior, and so it will uh, issue legislation not, not simply as before when, P, when the status quo is worse than uh, uh, the policy equals zero, which is its most preferred point, but rather it will issue a it will pass legislation only when it prefers the president's ideal, P equal one, to the status quo. I hope that's clear. So, see legislation only when it prefers? Oh, yes, and then, then of course, the, uh, 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 the president reinterprets this. So we're, we're going backwards, and then the status quo. So, um, we also, in the paper, uh, analyze a much more complicated case of what happens when you delegate to the bureaucracy. Here, the gridlock region, it's even more uh, 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 perverse in some ways. The gridlock region increases in size. I'm not going to go into any of those details. Um, but uh, so, uh, so what, are, what does the model mean? Well, signing statements have, in effect, switched the nature of the legislative process. Policy content is determined by the president, not the Congress. Um, without signing statements, the legislation uh, is, Congress passes the legislation so that uh, it is at its ideal point, that's P equals zero, whereas under signing statements, the president reinterprets the legislation so that the content of the legislation is P equal one, the president's ideal, uh, and this virtually reverses the role specified in Article One, Section 7. Congress has an ex-ante veto, not an ex-post veto like the president, but it cannot choose the content of the legislation. Whereas uh, if there's legislation passed by Congress, then the president uh, uh, gets to choose the, con the, the contents, uh, uh, and he will never exercise a veto, will always prefer to reinterpret. So in this, presidents gain dramatically. Uh, this is, you might think of as part of the imperial presidency where these two uh, uh, be approved by the court granted legal status. Yesterday, Mike McConnell uh, mentioned the prerogative presidency and he said, uh, I, I wrote this down, he said, presidents make policies out of whole cloth. Well, this is, uh, signing statements are a legal mechanism that poten are potentially a legal mechanism allowing the president to do just that. Um, Previous studies have observed reinterpretation, of course. What we add is a more in-depth analysis of this. And what's especially new is not just that the president may reinterpret and alter the meaning of legislation, but this significant role reversal and the perversion of the constitutionally specified uh, legislative process. Uh, it diminishes the role of Congress from producing legislation to having a veto, and of course, as I've said, enhances presidential power. Um, now we come back to the normative question I asked at the opening. Uh, this analysis has assumed that courts grant signing statements legal status. Uh, uh, and, and, that, uh, and, <laughs> and that reflects, as I've said several times, a very different uh, notion of the way legislation has been produced. Now sometimes, uh, and here I differ a little from Richard, sometimes uh, adaptation of the Constitution is an important and even necessary thing to do in the, fact of change, in the face of changing circumstances. 
but because of the risks associated with major constitutional change, I think we would agree that to the extent you ever want to do that, you want to do it uh, uh, when there are very high stakes, when something is at stake and a problem, uh, it's not obvious a problem can be solved without that. Uh, well, clearly that condition is not present here. There seems to be no significant justification for signing statements uh, as uh, solving a major uh, uh, problem that couldn't be solved otherwise, and in fact, uh, uh, simply transfers power within, within the, uh, uh, the political branches. Stephanie? <laughs> I know. Thank you very much, Barry. Appreciate that. Raised a lot of questions in my mind, I'm sure everybody else has. Nate, you're up. I figure if Barry can do PowerPoint, so should I as a respondent. So, uh, so here are my comments on Rodriguez, Stiglitz, and Weingast. I don't know. I don't think we can call you Rostigast yet. I think a certain number of uh, uh, co-authorships only earns uh, uh, that moniker. Uh, thanks for inviting me to, to comment on this paper and, and to, for this conference uh, today. I, uh, I couldn't make it here yesterday because I had uh, parental obligations, but I look forward to the rest of the day. Um, just to summarize quickly uh, the argument of the authors. Uh, so they've got the descriptive empirical sort of argument um, that Barry explained that you've got presidential signing statements that sort of ascend either during Reagan or maybe even Carter, uh, used with greater frequency in Clinton and Bush too, and then recently declined uh, with Obama. That would be interesting to think about why that is, since we're talking about proportions. Uh, and that, that maybe, contrary to the conventional wisdom, which focused so much on presidential signing statements during the uh, Bush administration, uh, the lion's share are not issued in, in the foreign policy area where uh, people paid so much attention. And then on the uh, positive analysis that there's a concern that it's going to enhance the president's power and diminish that of Congress uh, and will lead Congress not to act. And uh, another argument that, that Barry mentioned in the talk but uh, addresses more in the paper, which is that it actually could lead to greater politicization of the bureaucracy and perhaps hinder the ability of uh, independent agencies to do their job. And then finally, uh, because of all this, they're bad. Uh, that signing statements shouldn't be given any legal effect, not even Chevron-style deference, uh, which some, such as uh, Eric Posner and um, uh, Curtis Bradley, have argued for. Uh, let's just be clear, I think, what the stakes for the debate are. I should say, I, I, even during the heyday of this argument with the Bush administration, I thought that this was sort of a tempest in a teapot, that it was, um, you know, Maybe that's because I was focusing more on the court decisions and seeing whether, uh, you know, it was it was giving, uh, you know, great legal effect. If anything, you know, the most notorious examples of signing statements that then are maybe relevant to Supreme Court cases. If anything, the Supreme Court goes the other way uh, in cases like Hamdan uh, and and perhaps others. Uh, but but it's useful to look at the scope of the problem. Um, Obviously, the, the, the scope of the problem, this is just averaged out, talking about 4.5% of foreign policy bills as he has them, 2.5% uh, of domestic policy bills, but uh, it sometimes goes up uh, during, uh, I guess, the Bush administration to 15% or so of total bills, uh, or, or a little bit lower than that. Um, but as we said, that it's not clear that the courts are, are following suit um, with the, in their attention as, as much as, say, academics are. Um, uh, but that doesn't, 
that doesn't mean that debate is over and this could be a, a real problem uh, should they shift course and that's what the, this paper is, is a warning sign not to do that. Uh, and that it, look, this is a fundamental alteration of the framers design that leads to legislature issuing its sort of ex ante preemptive veto. Um, and, and sort of in a strong statement, they say the absence of legislation, the prevalence of the status quo policies means that a wide range of national problems go unresolved as Congress prefers uh, no legislation to the outcome uh, biased by signing statements. Uh, you know, it's, it's sort of strange these days. I mean, if you think of what uh, the, our incapacity to get legislation through, even without legal uh, uh, recognition of signing statements, it's sort of hard to think of what, how much worse it might even be, but, but maybe it would be. Um, here's what I think this paper really is about, and I suppose it's really about the topic of this conference, right? But um, first, this is also, depending on where you stand on these other debates, I think you have, then have a view on signing statements. So what are the appropriate tools for interpreting legislative history, or is legislative history even relevant in the context of statutory interpretation, and to what extent is it relevant? What kind of materials can you use? Second, and this is more uh, for the topic of yesterday and today, is what about executive power uh, in general, right? How different is this um, this debate then say the debate over the line on Invita, the debate over impoundment, executive non-enforcement that uh, another paper in this symposium talks about. Uh, third, uh, and third and fourth, um, this is part I think of larger debates over the erosion of constitutional norms that constrain uh, policy making, whether you're talking about debt default or you're talking about um, other, you know, uh, change in the use of the filibuster, senatorial holds or the like, um, this sort of fits in that uh, larger uh, literature. And also, I think perhaps even unintended, there's a debate here, especially given the uh, number of, of the most salient signing statements that deal with constitutional issues. Well, to what extent should other branches' interpretation of uh, the Constitution be relevant uh, uh, as opposed to uh, sort of our, our Marber versus Madison paradigm of the court being uh, the, the uh, having the power to determine what the law is, right? So I have to I have to at least tip my hat to that debate since our former dean at Stanford Law School, uh, Larry Kramer, was a big um, proponent of that, uh, even if I'm not. Uh, so first, some definitions. Uh, because it might have gotten lost in, in the previous pre presentation. We've got constitutional statements, interpretive statements, and celebratory statements. Constitutional statements are not the main uh, focus, I think, of the paper, although you could tell from, from the, some of the ones that were mentioned uh, that they, it's very hard sometimes to differentiate a constitutional signing statement from an interpretive signing statement, which, he, uh, which the authors focus on as the big problem. Celebratory signing statements, obviously, no one's got a problem with that. You know, presidents ought to be able to, to uh, cheer. Uh, and even if they do it in a signing statement, it would be just the same as if they did it in some other context. Um, I think I, I don't want that first point to be lost, though, the number of times that, you know, it, how difficult it sometimes is to think about. Uh, to draw this line between a constitutional statement and an interpretive statement, because one of the, one of my main points is going to be that that you know there are signing statements and there are signing statements, and that uh, different signing statements can do different things, and even interpretive signing statements uh, refers to a whole family of potential statements that could be either le legally relevant or not, and we shouldn't assume that you should adopt a theory of constitutional or statutory interpretation that says they're always irrelevant, right? Because you can think of some, I think some types of statutory signing statements might be relevant um, 
and uh, and perhaps should be have some judicial uh, attention. And so here here are some different ways to think about uh, the types of signing statements that could uh, even even within the universe the smaller universe of interpretive signing statements that might be uh, relevant. So first, is it is the signing statement strategic or sincere, right? Is the president trying to essentially delete part of the bill, which is the, the main cause for concern of these authors? Or is it a sort of a sincere signing statement? Look here, I'm. this is what I think the actual bill means, and it's not necessarily confrontational. But you can think of a signing statement as trying to sort of to, to emphasize, you know, uh, just like other aspects of legislative history, what the meaning of the um, well, even what Congress's intent is behind the law, even what, what, the, what the sort of shared view of the law is versus oppositional, which is, all right, I don't actually believe in what I'm signing, right? And here, let me show you, let me undermine it at the same time. Uh, related to that is, is it, is it clarifying uh, the legislation or is it altering it, right? Uh, because it's certainly the case that some of these signing statements have the character that uh, uh, Barry and his co-authors recognize, which is that are they essentially trying to veto the pieces of, are they essentially a line item veto trying to um, take out parts of the legislation they disagree with, or is it, are they genuinely trying to um, make sense of an ambiguous provision, right? And there are examples of that where, you know, the, the um, I'll actually, maybe I'll just read one to you so you can uh, hear, I didn't want to put it up there. Uh, so on the uh, one of the Bush um, uh, signing statements dealing with the uh, an, an Appropriations Act says, as is consistent with the principle of statutory construction of giving effect to each of two statutes addressing the same subject whenever they coexist, the executive branch shall construe the provision in the Energy and Water Appropriations Act under the heading National <laughs> Nuclear Security Administration Weapons Activities concerning transfer of funds from the Department of Defense to constitute an express authorization to Congress to which Section 8063 of the Defense, Department of Defense Appropriations Act uh, refers. Now, I have no idea what that means, but I think it's an attempt to <laughs> clarify uh, uh, something uh, in the act, right? And then those aren't atypical. I mean, they're, they're, maybe, they're not the ones that we maybe worry about, but it, there's also another uh, signing statement that George Bush did on um, dealing with a, a, a visa bill that had to do with um, you know, whether the statute actually was referring to the Coast Guard or some other agency. Now, maybe the political stakes in that question were, were very high, but it's not apparent, at least to me, from the signing statement. So is it clarifying? Is it altering? Is it a surprise or is it expected? And I think this is something that's important, which is that is the, does the president essentially lead Congress on in the negotiations as to what you know, that he's going to be behind the law, and then pull the rug out from under Congress at the time of the signing statement. Of course, that might only work once, but but uh, or it'll maybe only work a few times. Um, but if you are uh, basically doing something that Congress expects you to do, you might think that that is not as big a deal than if you're trying to surprise them in the end with the uh, with the signing statement. Of course, given the formal models that are that are up there, you might think again. Once this becomes routinized, then Congress behaves in a particular way. And then finally, and that this is a more uh, I'm sort of working through this. You might think of um, uh, signing statements as as either be thinking of of the president acting in a partisan way, right, against uh, uh, the 
opponents in Congress, or is it more almost serving his institutional ends? It's, and this is this draws on like the Pildes and Levinson article dealing with separation of parties, not powers. Are is he essentially uh, uh, protecting the office, or is he trying to protect either partisan or ideological, um, uh, or is he trying to further partisan ideological motives? Um, you can also think, I think, of the different audiences for a signing statement, right? They wouldn't necessarily um, only be the courts. And so, a, and, and, and when we're still talking about interpretive uh, signing statements here, that there may be directions that are in a signing statement to executive branch officials, to regulatory agencies, obviously to courts uh, and to Congress, uh, but also to regulated industries and individuals, right? Uh, as well as, of course, uh, to the media. Now, it may be, again, that if you allow the camel's nose under the tent with judicial recognition of signing statements that then the floodgates are opened and you have all the problems that are uh, illustrated by the models. But you could also think of uh, a sort of theory of, of signing statements in which some get through if they have certain features and some don't. But even that, as I'm suggesting, uh, leaving it out of the courts for a second, uh, for the same reasons you might have either think highly or negatively about a uh, president who uh, doesn't enforce certain parts of laws and, and not others, or uh, you make certain decisions about resource allocations, your beliefs about those separation of powers questions then will infect your view about uh, signing statements because in a, you're essentially front-loading executive discretion on, for example, whether they're going to dedicate certain resources to certain um, uh, parts of the law and, and others. All right, but here's the argument in favor of some legal recognition for some signing statements, right? Which is, again, drawing on just the, the basic debates in, uh, over statutory construction and legislative uh, history. Certainly, I would think, the signing statement of the president is at least as relevant as, uh, and meaningful as, a, say, a floor statement from a member of Congress. Uh, and, and one might think, given the shared role that both the president and um, Congress play in legislation that it should be even much more than that. Um, you know, it's at least as relevant as uh, you know foreign courts' interpretations of their constitution for constitutional law in the U.S. And obviously, there's a vibrant debate about that. Um, and so, I would think that the president's view on what the legislation actually means should have uh, some weight. Again, maybe there's a slippery slope here, but you know, we we. We here in law schools uh, are good at, at uh, trying to dig our heels in someplace on that slope. <laughs> Secondly, um, signing statements, uh, how do they work in the legislative uh, bargaining process? What does it really mean? Does it mean that the Congress is going to be vetoing, the preemptively vetoing legislation? Perhaps if the president can sort of willy-nilly alter the language of, you know, delete the word not in a piece of legislation. Yeah, maybe there, there is that concern, right? But assuming it's going to be something less radical, uh, it forces Congress to be very clear in its, uh, uh, either, either in its delegations or in what the law requires, right? And so you try to immunize a piece of legislation from uh, signing statements. Now, again, how, what you think about delegations generally will then maybe affect your preferences about um, whether Congress should have to produce legislation that is immunized against signing statements. Um, and then secondly, 
signing statements, and I've, I've seen this actually happen, can be part of the congressional negotiation and not necessarily in a, in a sort of nefarious way, right? So that the president can be on board with a piece of legislation and in the discussions can uh, you know, say, look, I'm going to uh, uh, make this signing statement. It could also be the case that you have strategic ambiguity of the parties in Congress, right? And then the signing statement is used as a way to kind of uh, uh, clarify, to take a position that Congress couldn't agree upon, right? All right. Um, as I mentioned, there are several different audiences potentially for signing statements, not just the courts, and we have to think about that. Uh, it can alert the executive branch of enforcement priorities. It can notify regulated individuals of how the law might be enforced. And um, you might think that there's a kind of at least advantage from the standpoint of transparency, better that you actually come out at the time of signing the bill saying what you think it means as opposed to sort of surreptitiously non-enforce it later on, right? Um, and so let me just close with just some hypos, some real ones, well, <laughs> they're not hypothetical if they're real, but there's some actual signing statements and then some hypothetical ones and see whether that, that kind of pushes on the models here a little bit. First, um, there are a series of signing statements that, that decry the existence of legislative vetoes uh, in the piece of legislation that's being signed because they say it's unconstitutional after INS versus Chada, right? Um, the most, obviously, the most the, the famous ones of recent vintage are dealing with foreign policy uh, questions or questions about the armed forces and how they violate either inherent powers in the executive or commander in chief power. Uh, the the one that was at issue in the Hamdan case, or potentially could have been at issue in the Hamdan case, which was whether the Detaining Treatment Act applies uh, to existing cases, and then. Uh, whether mandatory, uh, there's a series of, of signing statements that where the president will say, look, I don't really have to make these reports to Congress, which you have, you've told me I have to. Now, how about some of these hypothetical, you know, the hypothetical world is more interesting than the actual world, I think, here. Um, and so, given, and, and I tried to position these in context of, of concrete uh, separation of powers questions, but to try to reinterpret them or reimagine them as separation of powers, uh, or of signing statement problems, right? So suppose at the time of the signing of the Clean Air Act, the president, whether it was originally with Nixon or later with uh, Bush one, uh, said that the Clean Air Act would never apply to carbon dioxide emissions, right? Should that be relevant in the context of interpreting whether they could have, uh, obviously everyone would have said of course in both of those times, right? And, but, and so then the question is should that at least be relevant uh, in a judicial uh, interpretation of the Clean Air Act? Um, what about if, as is now the case with Obama's, uh, the Obama administration's drug enforcement priorities, uh, whoever signed the Controlled Substances Act or amendments to it said, well, of course, we're just going to, uh, we're going to focus on, on hard drugs instead of uh, marijuana. Would that be relevant? You know, should that, or do we want, do we at least admire the fact that that would be a direction that would be sent to the rest of the executive branch? Um, other uh, situations where you clarify, say, in a, in a, in a rights bill that, um, uh, that certain protections in the statute would apply only domestically uh, and not internationally. Or in thinking about uh, a, a statute that I think another paper in this um, symposium discusses, what about if at the time of, of, and this would be the most severe thing a president can, can do, well, here I'm signing the De Defense of Marriage Act, but I'm not going to enforce it. Right? Do we think about these different scenarios differently? Right? And can we draw the line somewhere which allows for some use of signing statements without uh, sort of throwing the baby without, uh, with, out with the bathwater? 
Nate, thank you very much. I think Barry wanted a couple of minutes to respond. I won't, and, and Nate, I'll ask you not to re-respond until later when you, at the yeah. end when you're more than welcome to. And then we'll take questions from the audience. And Richard seems to be has hand up first, but go ahead. Uh, thanks, Nate. These are great comments. I, I appreciate, you know, uh, a lot of what you said, you know, the, looking at the differentiating different kinds of signing statements in terms of strategic, sincere, clarifying versus altering the, uh, you know, are they affirming what the president's party is doing in Congress or uh, is he opposed to what the party in Congress is doing? I think all those are relevant. Um, one of the things I didn't say that's not in the paper but was in a, previous, in a previous version which should go here is that as legislation becomes more important, uh, uh, since after all uh, there's a large number of congressional medallions and, and the like that are uh, 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 part of legislation, uh, as legislation gets more important they're more likely to have signing statements, so that's an important fact. Um, but there's one point I wanted to contest that you, that, that you said, and you, you said that pres presidential, the president's view should be at least uh, taken at least as seriously, or at least as relevant, you said, um, as a, a member speaking on the floor of Congress. And I disagree, and I'll tell you why. It has to do with the idea of whether or not the, the, uh, the actor making, uh, making an interpretation that's relevant for the act pays a price for getting it wrong. So after the fact, Right? There's no, you know, the, w w if a deal has been made in Congress, and, and often what they will do is they will discuss it on the floor. They'll have a colloquy where, where somebody that's made a compromise will say, uh, let's have a co colloquy. They announce that they're going to do this. It's completely rehearsed. And um, somebody says, uh, you know, they ask about the provision that was altered in the bill for, uh, in, in, as part of the um, understanding that they would support the bill. And so they ask, now this bill... Tell me about this provision. What does this mean in your eyes? And they ask the bill manager to explain the nature of the compromise. All right? The bill manager pays a cost for getting that wrong. If the bill manager says, oh, I'm, I, I don't, I'm not going to recognize that, uh, uh, the agreement that we, uh, uh, that we made uh, before coming to the floor, then the... Um, it, that is a costly signal because the other mem the member of Congress that was making the de was making the deal can simply not abide by it and doesn't vote for the legislation. Whereas after the fact, the president pays no price. Right? The president it's not costly. Whereas you know you're suggesting that that the that, that signing statements might become part of the negotiations. Now that's a very different thing, right? Because then the president does pay a price if he if he releases a signing statement that was not part of that was di that differs significantly from the one that they altered. I should say that this idea about costly signals is, um, you know, one of the uh, uh, McNoll gas provisions in some of the uh, 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 statutory interpretation papers that we've written. Thank you, Michael. Okay, I'll start with Richard, then Alan, then Aaron. Yes, coming. You need to use mics because it sounds <laughs> really loud when you're room. under this, but you can't hear it up here. This is a, one of the worst acoustic rooms. Yeah, we know. That's one of the reasons we're building a brand new facility, right? <laughs> so it's to get ourselves out of this room. Look, Barry, um, I want to take issue with one thing. It seems to me that you have the wrong model when you're zeroing and winning on everything. Uh, that is, the way in which I understand signing statements is that uh, the Congress decides to put something forward, and it's not that the president is dead opposed to it. What happens is he thinks that you're asking for one, and he thinks the right answer is 0.95. And in fact, if 
the Congress had been put to the choice of whether it was 0.95 or nothing, it would take the 0.95. It then moves it a little bit further. He then moves it back. And the reason I would say that is in virtually all of the signing statements that I can see and the ones that you've referred to, it's always a question of whether or not you trench. Now, it has not a substantive disagreement. The question of the extent to which you trench on executive prerogatives and the way in which the office should be operated. Do you have to give this kind of report to that sort of thing? Um, uh, can you do this independently? Is there some sort of a thing? And you know, to me, if that kind of battle is important, but I don't think, in fact, in, in the distribution of things, you'd want to say that it's a policy inversion. That is, I think it's somewhat hyperbolic to say, well, what the Congress does is they can veto, knowing that the signing statement can alter it, they'll be, they won't do it. But I think the correct way to say it is, yes, they will worry about that at least at some point. But if you're talking about a 0.5 interval instead of a 1.0 interval, it seems to me that this is probably going to be very much a second order consideration rather than a first order consideration. And so while I agree with you there is this problem that a signing statement in effect can change the legislation to something which it is not, um, it doesn't seem to me to be as nearly as dramatic as, as you want to say. And I can't think of any cases where you would actually, if you looked at the president's initial substantive position, Congress's substantive position, see the congressional legislation, look at the signing statement and say, hey, that's exactly what the executive sent to Congress before uh, when he proposed the legislation. We're going to accumulate. You want to answer directly? You know, there's something to that. Clearly, a lot of the signing statements are written in the language of this presidential prerogative, you know, the, the, the uh, unitary executive and, and, and the like. There's no doubt that there's a lot of those. Um, part of the question is how much of that is something of a subterfuge for actually making the, you know, significant substantive statements. Uh, and, of course, in the one that I read, you know, where he says he's going to reinterpret this with respect to, uh, you know, the... the prerogatives of the president, um, it's, it's unclear what he has in mind and whether in fact that is a minor, you know, or, or actually that this is having a major interpretive effect. Um, certainly, I agree. Uh, you, you know, I, sh I should have said at the beginning, which I didn't, um, that we, we are putting this in extreme terms to put the, uh, you know, to, to show the effects. But of course, Part of what's going on now in this environment is there's a very uncertain legal status, right? And if you had one that, the, the more dramatic that they are, the more likely that would be the challenge of a court case. And so strategically, the president doesn't, I think, wants to mute, mute them. And whereas if they became, uh, if they were granted legal status, I think we'd see them expand in the nature. So. Alan, you are next, and then we'll go to Jen, and then Chris, and then Charlie. Zach Price's work, especially his long paper in the Vanderbilt Law Review, makes very clear that the president has the, always has the authority to decide which laws he's going to enforce and presumably the degree to which he enforces them. So what is a signing statement? He, he says, I'm not going to enforce the law, but he already had that authority to decide whether he wants to enforce the law or doesn't want to enforce the law or want to enforce the law only to a certain degree. I mean, he has that authority. So what does the signing, you say the signing statement changes the legislative process, 
but the president already had that enforcement authority. So all he's doing with the signing statement is saying, what I'm going to do is within my authority. The second part of my comment you've heard before from me, and that is duration. You know, the signing statement is only lasts as long as the president lasts. The next president can or cannot follow the, the, the first president's signing statement. So duration has to be an important part. If we're coming, for example, now to the last two years of the president's term, uh, that's very different than it occurs in the first year of the president's term in terms of what its effect on the enforcement is going to be. All right, let me work backwards through this. Okay. Friendly corollary. It changes the model of the legislature's behavior if they know that the effect would only be temporary. If you elevate this to like an executive order and have the courts interpret it as an executive order. Yeah. Um, l let me say a couple things about this. One is um, about duration. I think that you're right to point to that, Alan. And uh, we agreed that, that uh, you and I agreed that, that the authors of the paper would take that into consideration upon revision. But I don't think it's quite so straightforward because um, statutory interpretation is, is the specific idea uh, what courts do if, if, if they use signing statements as part of the statutory interpretation then they go back to the original record that what the Congress then thought and, and hence what the president then thought and so that's a way in which today's signing statement on today's act can affect the future of future presidents now it's it's clear uh, now let me get to your first question because I think that's the more important one um, I haven't read Zach's paper in the Vanderbilt Law Review. Um, not, uh, clearly, the president has some authority in this regard to not enforce uh, uh, acts. Uh, but the paper effectively says the president always has the authority to decide there's so many laws, the president can choose which laws he enforces, and he's always had that constitutional authority. He doesn't have the constitutional authority to extend the law, to change the law, but he has the authority to decide which laws he, that's essentially, the point of the yes, uh, to a degree, that's true. Um, I, I would remind you of Anne Burford Gorsuch, <laughs> or was it Anne Gorsuch Burford? I can never remember which was her married name and which one. But nonetheless, uh, as you will recall, she did exactly that. Uh, the EP, they, as Reagan's appointee to the EPA, she said, uh, we don't believe in these laws, we're not going to enforce it, and she was run out of Washington. So, you know, it's not quite so clear uh, about uh, uh, crass disregard for actual legislation uh, puts, puts public can put public officials in jeopardy. Now, small nuances and, and especially changes in weights of enforcement are certainly the president's prerogative. Uh, years ago, I studied the FTC from this standpoint to look uh, so as, as the nature of the congressional, the interest on the congressional committees changed, so too did the case mix. Uh, on the FTC, so that kind of thing happens all the time. Yeah, Jen? My only comment is that Andy was not president. <laughs> Jen, true. Um, I had a question for Barry and also one for Nate. Um, so for Nate, I'm curious as to why you would be inclined to give any effect at all to a signing statement that I'm signing this but I think, I, the executive, that a certain provision is unconstitutional or you know, violates the power of the executive, et cetera, not because it infringes on the power of Congress, yeah. but because we got somebody 
who's I'm, supposed to make that decision, and therefore, it's nice to know you think that. It's a red flag to somebody that they should bring the case and challenge it, right? So it's a it's a nice. Just to be clear, I agree with you on that. Okay. Yeah. No, that you shouldn't. That the constitutional right. question. Is, I mean, right, unless right. you're Larry Kramer and you think otherwise, but you know he's got. All yeah. right. Yeah. So great. So that's settled. And then um, Barry, I'm wondering how. I agree with Richard that it can't be zero one, but so do you. Um, I wonder how this plays out once we get this strange Congress that has two and a half parties, right? So you've got the core Republicans, you have the Tea Party, which is kind of Republican and kind of a third party. And then you have the Democrats and then you have other groups, but it's really those three that are the important ones. And one gets the feeling that there are a lot of deals that get done where the real consensus is Repub core Republican and Democrat, but there's certain things one can't say without losing the Tea Party or vice versa, you know. And so how, do, how does one deal with Congress's need to have a certain level of strategic ambiguity? And that was mentioned by Nate, but it would be interesting to, to dial that in to a future paper to see, well, how does this play out if Congress actually needs this mechanism to pretend it's doing X when it really is doing X minus. Okay, um, the first thing I want to point out with that is that this circumstance is not new and not unique. That, that certainly through much of the 20th, mid 20th century, the Democratic Party was just like this with the conservative Southern Democrats swinging, as likely to swing with the Republicans as uh, the Democrats. And so there was, the situation's by all means not, unpre not unprecedented. Uh, and, and so yes, I think it is politically relevant that it changes the nature of uh, 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 political rhetoric, political rhetoric around the time uh, at the crucial moments um, of floor passage and hence the indicia that becomes part of the record for statutory interpretation. So, that, so that'll matter. I haven't thought about it in the context of how that would affect signing statements and, and, and the like. Clearly, uh, if there's some strategic use of rhetoric, that the president can either uh, foster that or take advantage of that uh, in principle, but I, I have not thought that through. Chris. Mike, Mike, right here. I think that, uh, is this working? I, th I think that in this paper, uh, when you get to your conclusions, I like simple models too, uh, but uh, zero to one does uh, <laughs> carry you a long way to the conclusions that you announce at the end, and I think simply mentioning that. Uh, yeah. Also, when you get to your, your conclusions, they're, they're quite plenary. Signing statements, bad. But remember that you are limiting yourself to interpretive signing statements. And that, that sort of drops out when you get to the end. And I, I just think you should mention it. At the same Fair time, enough. I think that, pardon me? Fair enough. I think, I think, that, your, I think that your model uh, uh, is actually more applicable uh, to, I think you should, in the next paper, I think you should generalize it. Uh, based upon what we've learned at this conference about yeah. waivers, about just unilateral announcements that I'm changing the statute in some uh, respect, guidance documents, that really comes closer to the zero one, uh, P, moving P from zero to one, because they're more dramatic changes. But it, it complicates yeah. things, yeah. because now you're getting into an end period uh, game where yes. you can change, and you don't, the, 
it'll be a different president. You know, it could be yeah. agree with the first yeah. Congress. So it's kind of complicated, but, but your core model, I think, is closer to those yeah. kind of revisions mm -hmm. than the signing statements. Yeah. Um, I'd like to make a, a, a couple of little things, and then I'll, uh, uh, then I'll be through. Um, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of what you, there's an ambiguity between an interpretive statement and the constitutional statement, uh, such yeah. as uh, uh, in this three-part uh, thing Classification, that, that, you, yes. that you begin with. And, and just so you know, the ambiguity immediately leaps out because you say, we're going to talk about statutory. Yeah. Here's an example. And the example you give is a constitutional one. It's about the Clean Water Act, uh, the Safe Drinking Water Act. And uh, I don't know exactly you know, what, what the terms were. Uh, but you say it's a constitutional proposition, so you immediately move it into the constitutional category, yeah. Yeah. which is a very different sort of thing. Mm -hmm. And I, I just want to say, I think when you say it's highly debatable, um, if you listen to the conversation around the room yesterday, I don't think it would be highly debatable here mm -hmm. that, as, that when a statute said, the president must enforce this 100% of the time, for the president to say, as a constitutional matter, the executive who executes the law has to have some discretion in when you enforce and when you do not. Uh, so I think the people around the room would not think it's debatable. Uh, moreover, if the, the president says, well, wait a minute, the president is the CEO uh, under the mm -hmm. Constitution, I've got to have some discretion. I can't say every single time we're going to enforce no matter what, even though they only appropriate half what I want for the enforcement division, we still have to do it. What the hell does that mean? For the president to announce in advance that this looks constitutionally dubious seems to me to be a, uh, a, uh, a plus. Um, one f and then my third little point. I think it's too strong for you to say that, um, uh, that all this turns on whether, this, whether the courts uh, uh, assign some important whether they will recognize that P has moved to one in interpreting the law. Uh, as I have learned from you, procedure affects policy. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, quote, micromanagement that Congress engages in that is clearly moving around the deck chairs, you know, mm -hmm. within the executive branch that they, they just, it's not that they want to play executive, they want to determine outcomes. And where a president says, I'm not going to follow those procedures, whether it's for constitutional or purely interpretive reasons, it, a lot of those things may never get into court. Yeah. Uh, so it really, it, I don't think it turns as much upon court interpretation uh, as you sometimes suggest in the paper. Thank you. Uh, I want to thank you for all those nuances uh, and, and, and substantive points. I think that there's a lot there in terms of um, qualifications, and, and especially the point you made at the very outset about uh, returning to the qualifications of the analysis uh, in the conclusion. I think that's warranted. Um, one of the things you said, though, uh, about constitutionally dubious, uh, uh, um, I think it's one thing for the president to say something about his own uh, prerogatives, uh, and it's another thing for that to become part of the statutory record, right? So I think that to the, it, all presidents have the power and exercise the power to, to make priorities. Uh, and, and I think the question is whether or not 
as part of the specific legislative indicia about the meaning of an act as opposed to what the executive does. And so I think that that's a more subtle point and not simply obvious obvious that that, that, can, that that ought to be part of the statutory record and interpreted as such, as opposed to just something that's a constitutional fact. So. Okay, John, you're next. Thanks, so I, I wanted to uh, ask whether, because of, I agree with the, the, your description of the, you know, the positive description of their use, but the normative criticisms, I wonder whether you would similarly apply them to what you might call congressional signing statements, which we think of as just legislative history. Right? So all, why are not all the problems you have with signing statements apply with equal force to the use of committee reports, floor statements, and so on? In fact, I, I would think they have a very similar purpose in that initially uh, legislative history in the congressional area was not done to influence judicial interpretation. That came later was mostly try to control the administrative state and stand up for congressional prerogatives, which is sort of the same reasons that presidents are giving nowadays. And so maybe you could have a kind, maybe, you're, maybe shouldn't your rule be, let's have a uh, mutual disarmament and say courts should not use legislative history from either branch. Um, and then that might be a, and then that would actually, I think that might have the good result of that you would, I, I think the, the McNoll gas pieces I have read and think about would predict that the more that you use either of these kinds of things in judicial interpretation, the harder it will be for the branches to come to bargains in the future. Right? No, they won't trust each other to keep their word for future bargaining over other legislation. So maybe the best thing is just to call a halt to all of it, uh, at least in the judicial area. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, I, as you can imagine, I disagree with much of that, John. Um, I think uh, as far as it's not obvious at all to me that this will make, uh, that, that uh, using these kinds of pieces of indicia um, make the parties less trustworthy, especially to the extent that they're actually writing down the deals beforehand. So, so let's be specific about a committee report. So often a bill comes to the committee and um, as part of the hearings, the members of Congress realize that something, uh, on the committee realize that something won't pass. And they make a deal with somebody and they write the deal up in the, as part of the, the committee report. Uh, that's, a, that's an ex-ante negotiation, uh, and, and, and the report is written up in advance uh, before going to the floor. And so there's, uh, the, I, I think that the committee, and the members of the committee and the members to the deal pay a cost to getting it wrong, whereas um, uh, the president, after the fact, does not pay a cost. Uh, possibly future costs, but not on this legislation. And I think that that's a really key element of the nature of statutory interpretation, that things that are costly signals should be, should, should be granted greater weight than things that are not. Uh, so Humphrey in the Civil Rights Act, Humphrey uh, talking about um, uh, how the Civil Rights Act of 1964 was passed because of all the good things he did uh, and that they were able to hoodwink uh, Dirksen, he pays no price for that in his memoir several years later. Whereas what he says on the floor as part of his colloquies with Dirksen, uh, he does pay a price if he gets wrong what they negotiated. And so I think that, that things that are part of the legislative record that ha are costly signals uh, should be taken much more seriously than things are not. Can I just Maybe say, you but that's also going to be a subset of legislative history, the types of legislative history that are going to lead to costs, right? And that's the, again, that's where I come out with why I said what I said that you took issue with about, well, it's at least as relevant as a, um, yes. a member on the floor. Well, it's, 
it's not always the case that someone on the floor, I mean, there, there are examples, uh, one I'm most familiar with is the Voting Rights Act reauthorization in 2006, where there's real just competition to throw things into the legislature, to make floor statements that go uh, into the record. Um, and, and there's divergent opinions there as to what the statute actually means. And so, uh, as John said, maybe all of it's irrelevant, um, but if that's relevant, you might think that, all right, well, the president's uh, statements are just as relevant, just if you're trying to figure out what people at the time thought the legislation was about. Mm -hmm. We had a couple back here. Yeah. In, in either case. Yeah, right there. Uh, hi, so I have a, a couple of different thoughts on all this. I guess as an initial matter, I would share Nate's uh, skepticism about how much all of this matters, but I might put it in a slightly different way. Uh, it seems to me that uh, you know, even if the courts decide they are going to rely on signing statements, so they go a different direction than the Ninth Circuit did in the, in the Takima case, for instance, I would think that signing statements would be quite low on the lexical ordering of the different interpretive tools that courts use. Uh, it's mm -hmm. certainly going to be below text. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, Barry has a, a good reason for why it should actually be below legislative history as well. And so uh, this just suggests to me that its use is probably going to be make weight uh, in judicial opinions. And so I guess I'm sharing Nate's skepticism. Perhaps mm -hmm. this is just a, a tempest in a teapot. You mm -hmm. know, an answer to that might be that the expansion of presidential prerogative that, that Michael McConnell identified yesterday, that's actually, it's a creeping process, right? It's a death by a thousand cuts, and so we really should care, right? It's that the, it's that the increases in presidential prerogative, I believe, is a positive matter, is a descriptive matter that has occurred in recent decades, and maybe it just happens in lots of little ways over time. But still on this issue, I think I'm inclined to see it as a, a fairly small matter. Uh, as a result, I think maybe the best lens is to view this as more of a bureaucratic signal, right? Not something that affects legislative negotiations, not something that expands the gridlock region, but we should view it in the same way, and maybe I'm just inclined to think this way because I commented on a paper on guidances yesterday, but we should think about how this actually sends a signal to the bureaucracy about how the law is going to be implemented. And I think a couple impl impl uh, implications flow from adopting that lens rather than more of a legislative negotiation uh, lens. One is, Barry, that I'm not entirely certain why this isn't a costly signal for a president, given that the president is presumed to have some authority over the, over the agencies that in turn are going to implement the laws. So the president does pay a price if he stands up and says, you know, I think the law should be implemented X way, not Y way. If bad, you know, if repercussions flow from that, then obviously the president is paying a price. Um, a second possible implication is I wonder if this maybe scrambles some of the categories uh, that we use to describe signing statements, or at least would cause us to reallocate certain signing statements to categories. You know, yesterday I talked about guidances that are affirmatively regulatory, that add mandates, as against deregulatory guidances. And it strikes me that the category that we, that you referred to as an interpretive uh, uh, signing statement tends to be deregulatory. It's a president taking issue with something that Congress did. It's, it's a president saying, I'm not going to enforce provision X or provision why. Um, but it's interesting then to think about what about the Clinton signing statement with respect to IDEA, the Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, right? That was a celebratory statement, but that's very much a signal to the bureaucracy and also to regulated parties. The signal there is this administration really likes IDEA. Local school districts, look out. We're going we're gonna to interpret this law expansively across a wide range of provisions that are there. It's hardly celebratory. It's hardly innocuous. It hardly has no legal bite. In, in fact, it's quite a clear signal to, again, both the folks at the Department of Education and also local school districts, get ready. Um, 
You made a lot of points. Let me respond to two. Um, I think that the idea that the president pays, pays a price, um, certainly the president pays some price. The problem is, is it's not, the price is different than what members on the floor pay if they get it wrong. Members on the floor pay by the legislation fails. The president's price is nothing, you know, is nothing like that, and it, it may be hard to extract much at all from that. The idea that signing statements, uh, if, in, in most of your remarks, you in effect gave me the answer that I, that I wanted, that is on the normative thing, says, okay, let's, let's not consider them as part of the statutory interpretation process and think of them as more part of the executive branch directives. And I have no problem with that. I think that's perfectly fine. The president has any number of ways of doing that, and uh, uh, adding this to that uh, is much along the lines that I think Bradley and Posner discussed in, in their earlier paper, and I, I see nothing wrong with that. Uh, and, 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 but that's different than saying that they ought to play a role in statutory interpretation. Okay, there's a question back here. Yeah, that's Zach. Uh, yeah, there's a glare up here. Can't see anything past about the second or third sure. row. Yeah, well, I thought the study was very interesting, but a couple uh, quick thoughts based partly on working on constitutional signing statements in the Justice Department for a certain period. And the first is just, um, when the Obama administration came in with all the controversy about the Bush administration signing statements, they issued a memo of sort of criteria about when we're going to issue signing statements. And as I recall, uh, one of them was we're going to we'll only issue the signing statement if we notified Congress of the issue in the legislative process. And I wonder if that sort of requirement would solve the, the sort of bait and switch issue. Um, but then secondly, I wanted to um, sort of along the lines of what David just said, uh, suggest that maybe, um, on the one hand, uh, there is a need to sort of separate the wheat and the chaff, as Nate is suggesting, but also that maybe that it's not right that, that intuitions about executive power in general necessarily apply in this context. And one thought I have there is I, I, my feeling, and this could be wrong, is that there's a fairly strong norm that signing statements are used for things like the, that opaque defense appropriations provision that Nate was reading. So some sort of genuine interpretive puzzle in a statute where the function of the signing statement, the reason to put it up front is to provide a clear signal to the bureaucracy and to the public at large about how a certain provision is going to be uh, used. And so we could see a more expansive practice that would, would be liable to abuse, but I, I wonder how, how prevalent that is in these interpretive signing statements. Yeah. Um, and then lastly, on the sort of prerogative presidency point, maybe this might be a little bit different because the, the issue that I think Michael was raising to come up with in the discussion more generally is that um, is a problem of sort of accreted discretion. That we have the, the president as the head of the executive branch has tremendous authority by virtue of all these laws enacted over time that enable various regulatory authorities and, and questions about what to enforce and what not to enforce. But when you're dealing with a signing statement, it's tethered to a specific bill that's in front of the president. So I'm not sure it, it creates quite the same risk of sort of, of, of executive authority. It's, it's going to sort of necessarily going to be mm -hmm. used only for something that's very specific to that one bill. Mm -hmm. um, okay, let me work backwards through the three points. The last one about the presidential prerogative. Um, I, you're right to say that it's different from the accretion of authority. Uh, nonetheless, the ability to make major changes in legislation also has an aspect of the prerogative presidency. And if we're using an analogy, I think that uh, uh, the analogy, it, it's, it's an appropriate extension of the analogy, even if it's not exactly the same phenomena. 
Um, I don't think anything hinges on, on, on the analogy, so <laughs> if you really don't like that, that's fine. It's not in the paper. Um, the idea that the president will sometimes, moving backwards, the idea that the president will sometimes use this to discuss opaque provisions is certainly right. Uh, you know, there's no doubt that the president has that authority to do that, uh, can do that, and, and that at times that would be very useful. The problem with so many things are the trade-offs. At a time, just because it's useful and the president could do that sometimes doesn't mean that that's the way the power will be used on average. So that's part of what our point is. And then as far as the constitutional signing statements point, I think that um, I, I did not realize uh, uh, that important piece of information about the Obama administration. If the Obama administration says to the effect, we will issue them but only as part of the process and we'll uh, uh, circulate a draft in advance that's part of this and we'll negotiate over that, then that's something that I think uh, Nate suggested, then I think that that has a very different light on the nature of what signing statements are because then the president does pay a price from deviating from what they agreed on. And so I will add that to the paper. I think that's an important point. Yeah. Okay, a couple of questions and I'm gonna, I'm gonna ask a couple. Thank you. Um, slightly different point then um, has been raised about why these might be not very uh, influential in practice. Uh, from the court standpoint, it seems to me like uh, we've been proceeding with the conversation as though um, this is just a huge doctrinal question mark, what to do with these things. Um, but it strikes me that the doctrinal formal structure that's already in place is likely going to sift most of these uh, uh, citing statements into categories that make them more or less irrelevant. Um, so if it's a constitutional, uh, I, I take the point that it's hard to tell the difference between an interpretive and a constitutional statement. Uh, but if it's leaning towards the constitutional side, then either the court's going to <laughs> ignore it because the court ignores the constitutional opinion of Congress and the executive, or it's going to be a, or it's going to be a political <clears throat> question, in which mm -hmm. case the court's not going to uh, mm -hmm. wade into it, right? Mm -hmm. um, if no one's injured by it, then no one's going to have standing. Mm -hmm. um, and if someone is injured by it, it's likely because there was uh, a rulemaking or an adjudication by an agency, in which case that's going to be the focus of the attention and not the signing statement. Um, if there's no rulemaking or adjudication, uh, but the statute itself directs an agency to do the interpretation, right, to, to flesh out the statute, then the signing statement has this really ambiguous um, relationship to the APA and the sort of whether the president uh, mm -hmm. uh, can effectively do an end run around the, the statute's mm -hmm. um, direction for which agency mm -hmm. ought to be in charge of doing the interpretation. Um, and if there's no interpretation, but that coincides with the signing statement, that may raise a kind of ultra virus type of question. Yeah. So two two points. One is, um, if there's a rulemaking involved, then then you're clearly right that there's an opportunity to deal with that. You know, uh, for for the affected parties to intervene, it's much harder if the if the signing statement says don't enforce this and don't write rules on this, and uh, uh, it's a lot harder to deal with that. Um, Secondly, uh, going back to the, the first point, uh, you know, several uh, have you, of you have mentioned the idea that these things are not, not that important, that we're over-dramatizing it. And in a, ex, to an extent, there, there's some truth to that. Part of the reason we're over-dramatizing dra, dra, 
<laughs> Overemphasizing it is because uh, of the, uh, uh, we, want, we want to su suggest what would happen were these taken seriously. Part of what's going on now is they're not taken that seriously. And, and so, and, and, and I think it's because people have a sense of this. You know, that this, that, that the nature of the logic that, that I uh, suggested. And so, uh, it's not that they're inherently that they are inherently not effective and, w and would not have this effect how they were courts to treat them seriously, and, and that's what our point is. Okay, right here, and then I'm going to ask a question. Okay, great, thank you. So what I was hoping, Barry, is that in the paper you'll spell out more carefully what effect signing statements would have uh, under the different regimes of deference that courts apply to agency interpretations. Uh, are we in the Chevron world, or we, are we in the Skidmore uh, yeah, world? Right. Um, we're in the Skidmore world if the interpretation occurs in a guidance document that is one not op that's adopted not uh, under um, authority of delegated authority, but if it's in a rulemaking or adjudication, uh, then it gets Chevron deference. And, and assuming that we are going to pay attention to them, um, but that they're never binding, um, they are, as John, you said, uh, kind of like legislative history. They're a clue um, to uh, what a diff difficult interpretive problem, mm -hmm. how it should be solved. But it would operate differently under Chevron. Um, I think it, under Chevron step one, it could be used mm -hmm. to show that a statute which appeared to be clear is not really clear, mm -hmm. um, and thus swinging mm -hmm. you to step two. Mm -hmm. Um, and under Skidmore, which is a, a um, all the clues about interpretation are relevant in deciding whether you should put a thumb on the scale on the agency side, um, I think they're quite helpful um, mm -hmm. in being one more clue as to whether the agency is right or wrong. Mm -hmm. I, I go with you all except for the conclusion. It's, it's just not obvious to me that, that, I mean, yes, they can provide clues. And yes, as with the example of the ambiguity, uh, an opaque statute, the president can use these to, to, to further, uh, to, to make things less ambiguous, more transparent. But that doesn't mean that that's going to be the general use of them. Uh, as far as the issue of, of Skidmore versus um, Chevron, that's not something that, that, that we thought about, and I think that would be useful to see if that makes a difference. And so I really uh, I appreciate that remark, and we'll uh, take that into consideration when we revise the paper. So thanks. Okay, I'm going to uh, take the uh, chair's prerogative, and I'm going to make two or three statements and then ask several questions. <laughs> so. Um, First, just from my own personal life experience, particularly when I was CEA chairman, the single most surprising thing to me, whoops, the single most surprising thing to me as CEA chairman was how much time I spent on regulatory matters. So I had a big, I thought a big portfolio. We had the previous financial crisis with the savings and loans and the third world debt, the money center banks. We were trying to free spending. You know, there's a zillion things we're dealing with, whether the Fed was uh, doing what it was doing appropriately, et cetera. And by the way, ably assisted and with wise counsel from Allen at the beginning, he had graciously agreed to stay over for a bit and, uh, uh, and help me uh, get my sea legs. But I would characterize the four years as I basically carried a virtual machete every day. It was really quite remarkable. And many of the things that have been mentioned today really resonate with me. 
Uh, I'm going to talk about your paper in a minute, but uh, <laughs> yeah, many, many in your paper, others, uh, others the questions that arose this morning. The idea of sending signals, the strategic interaction with Congress and the bureaucracy, the fact that whether it was the 70s or 80s, I can assure you by 1989, the run rate was really, really high. Uh, and we did some good things and some bad things in that regard when I was CA chairman. And the ambiguity, whether deliberate or unintentional, really really uh, uh, rang, uh, uh, resonated with me from my personal experience. Um, let me say a word about how I think, I very much like the paper, how I think of the strategic interaction. And, you know, you have to model something, you have, you know, two or three players, you can't have, a, you know, a huge number, et cetera. Uh, but I think of this as kind of a continuous circular flow. Um, you start with an interest that meets, uses, or perverts an idea. That becomes legislation. That legislation already often has had much executive input. Many, many, many pieces of legislation started with a bill from the White House going down to Capitol Hill. I helped write many, and I'm going to talk about, even at that stage, the strategic interaction with the bureaucracy. Um, then there's legislation comes in, there's what was the congressional intent? It's interpreted, it's administered, there are court challenges, there are revisions, and you go back through another loop. So the kind of thing you're emphasizing, which I think is really useful to emphasize about Congress backing up and thinking about whether there'd be a change in the law through the signing statement or attempt to do something or something that also works in the other, other direction. We often would send up legislation leaving something out either pre-cooked that somebody in Congress would add it, or that uh, we expected that to happen through the legislative process. Of course, sometimes what happens surprises you or dismays you and you're stuck in a, in a new kind of bargain. And I'll just give a couple of examples. Uh, one, for, you know, in addition to the famous Nancy Pelosi quote, we have to pass the uh, Affordable Care Act so we can read it to understand what's in it. Okay, so, <laughs> so, um, or yeah, or not read it to say what's in it, even though that wasn't what we wrote. Um, so it was the Tax Reform Act of 1986, which is a hugely consequential piece of legislation, dramatically lowered rates. What happened was the Treasury designed a law. The White House di didn't like some of it. They revised it, sent it to Capitol Hill. It first lost in the Ways and Means Committee and on the floor, was revised, passed, went to the Senate, stalled, and the Senators Packwood and Bradley cut a deal, and that became the basis of the law. They left town, and because I had been an advisor of the Finance and Ways and Means Committee, for the next two weeks I'd, I would get a call every other day asking me, what do you think they meant by that? <laughs> so so at my, early in my career I was exposed to the ambiguity issue. Um, in um, this notion about uh, the strategic interaction with bureaucracy, I, uh, uh, I'll give you a couple of uh, interesting, and signals, give you a couple of interesting examples from, from my life. So one was the Clean Air Act amendments of 1990, which introduced emissions trading for sulfur dioxide mm -hmm. and a variety of other things. So Bush 41 was, you know, not an environment, a conservationist, you know, what would now be considered a mild environmentalist, but had some environmental, cared about the environment. We were gonna do something we had a strategy that we agreed to among the economic agencies that we were going to limit the cost. 
and we got the president to do a signing statement, someone here, or a, uh, what do you call those things, a declaration of intent or whatever, you, you'll veto a, a veto threat if you don't do, I've forgotten what the name is, you know, any, if, it's, if the Clean Air Act Amendment as it comes out of Congress is estimated by the Council of Economic Advisors to cost more than X, I'll veto it, okay? So I know I'm going to be on the hot seat at some point in all this, right? If, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to have to say that it's uh, no, more than, uh, no more than X because he wants to sign the bill. So I basically, by using the threat of my ability to do the counting, mm -hmm. the costing, I got the EPA administrator to agree in writing to a variety of very specific um, ways the law would be implemented. There would be a few, he'd allow a futures market for emissions trading, how the new, new, uh, the new source review rule would be interpreted in our administration, stuff like that. And I kept it in my safe. <laughs> and that was the basis on which we were able to do this. So, so there's in many different levels of this, this is going on. And you might call that the administration, but the EPA doesn't usually think of itself as a part of the administration. Matter of fact, at one point when they drafted our original bill, it was totally different than we had decided in the interagency process and Bush had decided. And uh, so I got the EPA people, the administrator and his chief architect to come over. And they said, well, we wrote it to be consistent with the Clean Water Act. So there's a lot of gaming going on on both sides. And of course, then they go to their friends in Congress to try to amend the right, bill. Sure. So all that's, all that's going on. So I think it was kind of a continuum uh, just from my, my personal life experience. On the signal side, probably the most powerful signal I was involved in sending was on the financial interest and syndication rules. Mm -hmm. Hollywood and TV battling it out, you know, the rich and the super rich. And Reagan had, uh, you know, they brought in Lou Wasterman uh, as Reagan. They had cooked it so that, you know, we get rid of, we yeah. loosen this up. Jack, Jack Valenti brought Lou Wasterman in, who was a buddy of Reagan's, and Reagan changed what they, what they were going to do at the last minute. Ambo Derrick, well, <laughs> hard to argue. Any event, so, um, so we had a different point of view. We wrote about it in the economic report of the president, which is another kind of signal sending thing. And um, a, a, uh, a protege of the second most powerful person in the administration, who shall go nameless, was on the FCC, and was, we were gonna lose the vote um, because of her if she, she had scripts out in Hollywood and all this sort of stuff. So um, she was up for reappointment. And everybody thought she was gonna get reappointed because you know she was a Republican, she was a protege of this powerful person. And I went to the mat and stopped it. And it probably only lasted, you talk about depreciation, temporary, prop, for the next two or three months, we got a lot more cooperation on, on, uh, from the regulators on things, you know. So there's a lot of different ways you can do this. Right, Half-life so, of three months. Enough, yeah, yeah, so it does depreciate, but there are a lot of signals you can, ways you can send signals, yes. uh, some people have mentioned, that can actually cause an influence. So, so I want to just make, um, you know, with the causality working in both directions and all this sort of stuff, I want to ask three questions as a result of this. Okay, so the first is, um, revolves around uh, how significant the signing statements are. And there's two parts to that. One is how much they change what may have been the original intent or the clear, the clear words or some baseline of what the law really was. And secondly, how significant that change is in its effects on the economy or in somewhere else. Okay? And it's a start, certainly, to say it's only a small percentage of bills or 
you know, there are this many and the number went up, et cetera. Uh, but we, we've gone through something like that and improved a bit on the, re on the regulation side. We started with just counting the Federal reg Register. Now we have rules, sometimes gamed, about, um, you know, uh, cost estimates and cost estimates over $100 million have a different level of review and things of that sort. So it seems to me uh, you guys ought to get some graduate students trying to figure out how many of these really were consequential or potentially consequential. It's not an easy thing to do, but it seems to me to be very important. Maybe you've thought about that. Um, the second is um, in what we would call the core of feasible outcomes of this bargain and um, or the bargaining process. And you've come to this conclusion in your setup that you'd have a much wider uh, gridlock area. Mm -hmm. um, and the spirit of your paper is that's a bad thing, that it re reduces our ability to solve problems. I suspect if Bill Buckley or George Will were here, they'd, they'd cheer that outcome, that maybe we passed too many bills, maybe we, Congress is doing a lot of stuff that isn't any good. So I just want to raise that possibility. Uh, I don't, on balance, agree that the net is negative, mm -hmm. but there's certainly some fraction of it is quite negative. So. Uh, <laughs> So I, I would just be curious as to, your, uh, as to your thoughts on that prospect, that maybe sometimes gridlock isn't such a bad thing. I'd have to agree with that last statement. Maybe gridlock isn't such a bad thing under some circumstances. I think that that's right. I mean, you, you, you know, you can certainly, this is not about the paper, uh, uh, but nonetheless, the paper might be qualified as, as to the meaning of gridlock. And, and I think that you raise a bunch of interesting questions. The idea of, of trying to measure the impact of these, I think, is it would be it would be a great thing. It's often difficult to measure, you know, some of the the links if the bureaucracy takes the signal but does not refer to the signal in their report explaining why they're doing. But nonetheless, the idea of you know connecting this with the economic effects, I think, would be a good one. And I I, I take that as to be the spirit of your uh, your remarks. For more podcasts from the Hoover Institution, please visit hoover.org or Hoover's channels on iTunes, iTunes U, Stitcher, and SoundCloud. I'm Chris Dower for the Hoover Institution. Thanks for listening.